KPFK in Los Angeles, this is Living in the USA. I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. Later in the show, the political battle currently underway in Los Angeles, where landlords, multimillionaires, and the police are trying to defeat the leading progressive on the city council. Their key issues are protections for renters. Their key issues are protections for renters and new taxes on mansions. Peter Dreyer has our analysis. Also, the latest U.S. moves in Haiti are framed in democratic rhetoric, but are deeply anti-democratic in their effect. Amy Willits will report. But first, today's political update with Harold Meyerson. Of course, he's editor-at-large of The American Prospect. Harold, welcome back. Always good to be here, John. Well, we have good news this week from the Supreme Court about what they are not going to do. They are not going to take up a challenge to rent control laws, and they are not taking up a challenge to diversity policies in school admissions. First of all, the renters. Landlords had sued New York City challenging the rent control law there that gives tenants a right to stay for many years, more or less indefinitely, in rent-controlled apartments. The landlord said that violated the Constitution's ban on the taking of private property for public use. The California Apartment Association had urged the justices to hear the New York case because there is rent control right now in Los Angeles, San Francisco, San Jose, Oakland, Sacramento, Santa Monica, Berkeley, Pasadena, and even Beverly Hills. Only one justice voted to hear this case, Clarence Thomas. Peter Dreyer has a piece in the new issue of The Nation about how renters are the sleeping giants of L.A. politics, responsible for the election of the three uh, new progressives on the city council. So this move by the Supreme Court not to take up rent control is a huge victory for the renters' rights movement in L.A. and everywhere else, and and for the millions of people who rent apartments in Los Angeles. Yes, this really got started uh, during World War II when there were uh, wage and price controls pretty much on everything. And New York City, under the progressive leadership of Fiorello LaGuardia and a very progressive city council, just kept the rent control laws on the books once the war ended. And so rent control is quite, uh, you know, a venerable law in New York, although, you know, the court court has actually overturned a a far more venerable uh, gun control law that was in New York City since about 1902. So you couldn't count on them for that. But on this, they, they delivered. And yes, tenants' movements in California are real. Uh, sometimes they're sleeping. Sometimes they're semi-awake. <laughs> um, as I recall, when I was in California writing about this at the time, they really got going in the aftermath of Proposition 13, which lowered uh, owners' uh, property taxes considerably. And in campaigning for Proposition 13, uh, its advocates, such as Howard Jarvis, also said, this will lower your rent. And when it didn't, you got the rise of rent control movements in L.A. and in the Bay Area. And, you know, they've uh, waxed and waned since. But given the absurd cost of housing and in particular rental housing in all of California at this juncture, they are poised. And, you know, if the court had a rule to strike it down, 
I think you would have seen uh, a wave of activism. I'm not sure doing what exactly, but a wave of activism, certainly in California and, uh, and in New York. And the other case the Supremes turned down, this takes us back to the summer of protests over the murder of George Floyd in 2020. After that, one of the country's top public high schools, Jefferson High School for Science and Technology in Alexandria, Virginia, adopted new admissions policies to diversify the student body. The school board did away with a rigorous entrance exam and prioritized admission to the top students from each public middle school in the area, rather than the top applicants from all schools. And admissions officers were told to consider experience factors, such as whether students were poor, were learning English, or were attending a middle school that was historically underrepresented. Race, notably, was not listed as a factor. And given that configuration, only two justices wanted to rule on that case, Alito and Thomas. So this is uh, kind of surprisingly good news for diversity in our public schools. Yes, it's, it's, it's kind of, as it were, the back door to uh, affirmative action. Uh, it's not race specific. Indeed, you know, some of what it does is uh, a form of what critics of race-based affirmative action, such as Rick Kallenberg, uh, have called for, which is class-based affirmative action. It, it, it's a version of that, among other things. It also, I think, represents an interesting political calculation by the court that, you know, having gone fairly far in, uh, in a direction that outraged people, it's not going to go there again for a while. <laughs> we'll see if that holds when the, a case about Mifepristone and whether that can be uh, legally mailed across the country uh, hits the court. There are all times when the court is basically political, as, uh, uh, as has been said by humorists and others back to the 19th century. But in this case, there's a limit, I suspect, to how much the court wants to go around uh, with a kick me sign on their rear end. <laughs> Now it's time for news of the class struggle in America, regular feature of this broadcast. The president of the Service Employees International Union, the SEIU, Mary Kay Henry, has announced she will step down as president this summer at the union's convention. Tell us about what she did in her 14 years as head of the SEIU. You write in the prospect that she significantly bettered the lives of millions of American workers. Millions, really? Yeah, millions, really. Now, I should add, uh, particularly for a California audience, that SEIU is certainly the largest union in California with 700,000 members uh, alone in California and a, a little shy of 2 million nationwide. What, what, what Mary Kay Henry did was she got behind the, once it just incubated rather briefly in New York City, the uh, $15 campaign, $15 in a union, which began as a, a campaign of uh, the Brooklyn affiliate of ACORN uh, or its successor organization and a local SEIU local in Brooklyn dealing with McDonald's. What happened is, is, is rather fascinating. And this is, let me just remind yeah. people, the fight for 15. The fight for 15 uh, is, is what this campaign was called, but it was initially called 
the fight for 15 and a union. And what happened was that the state of labor law was so threadbare that, uh, you know, McDonald's individual franchise owners, jack-in-the-box individual franchise owners, and, and the corporations themselves could fire any worker who was involved in, in trying to get a union, and the penalties are so negligible that, you know, the, the, they were going nowhere on the unionization front, as has been the case for every worker who is more or less replaceable. Uh, the unionizations we've seen in recent years have been workers who can't easily be replaced from university teaching assistants to hospital interns and residents. And nonetheless, SEIU at Mary Kay Henry's direction stuck with the 15 part, even when they couldn't get the union part and succeeded in getting minimum wages raised to 15 bucks initially in a handful of major West Coast cities, Seattle, San Francisco, LA, then New York, then as a matter of state law, in, in California, in New York, and then, you know, it's spreading to other blue states, New Jersey, New uh, Illinois, and so on. And, and going a little further, was able to get uh, in California and New York, some particular raises for in, uh, workers in particular sectors, airport workers in New York, all the fast food workers of whom there are half a million in California, they got through the legislature a bill which Gavin Newsom signed, which rate will raise their wages to twenty dollars an hour, and created a, a kind of—it's <laughs> hard to describe—a kind of shell of sectoral bargaining. The workers and the union will be able to sit down with franchise owners and a big company like McDonald's and the, whoever is in the state labor department, appointed by the governor to deal with issues of common concern. They can't deal with the wages and, and benefits. I think they can probably deal with things like hours and uh, uh, knowing what one's hours are. It's got the structure of the kind of sectoral bargaining that exists in much of Europe, but there the workers are unionized and here because of the weaknesses of labor law, they are not. So in, in, in a sense, what Mary Kay Henry has done is using the power of her union in legislatures and city councils with all those members who vote to get uh, benefits for workers, even though uh, the union wasn't picking up new members uh, who would pay the dues that would, uh, you know, offset the expenses for elections and lobbying to get the legislatures to do the right thing. Is this a, a blueprint for what the SEIU can should do more of in the in in the future, or or are we in a different era now? Well, uh, on uh, the day we're speaking on uh, on Wednesday, the United Auto Workers just announced that it is going to spend forty million dollars on sort of traditional on the ground plant gate organizing of uh, the non-union uh, auto factories, mainly in the South, uh, none of which are, uh, are, are, are unionized. And they're responding to the fact that A, they've got great cred since they won a highly publicized uh, strike with uh, GM, Stellantis, and Ford uh, that got landmark contracts, which compelled these non-union companies to raise their own workers' wages. They're uh, responding to changes in labor unionization rules that uh, Joe Biden's NLRB has has put in place. And they're responding 
to the real upsurge in pro-union sentiment uh, in the nation generally, and particularly among the young. And I think that has to be uh, what unions uh, invest in now. I mean, that doesn't mean they should not campaign for legislated higher wages and, and, and so on. But what Mary Kay Henrik accomplished is uh, over her 14 years as president is sort of what you could do in that political time and that political space. And we are seeing the possibility for moving into a different political time and space where, you know, organizing blue collar, pink collar workers into unions uh, is certainly more possible again. And the UAW has just put $40 million down as a bet on that. Well, now it's time for This Week in History. 82 years ago this week, in 1942, FDR signed Executive Order 9066, creating the wartime internment program for Japanese Americans. This was, what, two months after, after Pearl Harbor. The rationale was that every person of Japanese ancestry, including citizens, had, was a suspect for espionage and disloyalty and... Uh, if there was a Japanese invasion of the West Coast, they would be a third column. So they were forced into camps around the country. Every Japanese person, regardless of whether they were citizen or not, uh, notably Manzanar for Japanese Americans in, in L.A. and Southern California, that's out, out towards Death Valley, two-thirds of those incarcerated were U.S. citizens. Japanese immigrants gained the right to become U.S. citizens in 1952. And then in 1976, President Ford officially repealed Executive Order 9066 after there was a Japanese-American movement for, for repeal and reparation. Uh, he said, we know now what we should have known then. Not only was the evacuation wrong, but Japanese Americans were and are loyal Americans. I call upon every American to affirm that we have learned from the tragedy of that long ago experience and to treasure liberty and justice for each individual American and resolve that this kind of action shall never again be repeated." Close quote. Admirable uh, rhetoric from Gerald Ford in 1976. But now suddenly, internment camps are back kind of on the political horizon in the United States because Trump has promised that if he's elected to a second term, he would launch the largest domestic deportation operation in American history. And of course, he would need detention camps to do that. And Stephen Miller, Trump's advisor, explained that in order to deport 10 million people, he called them foreign national invaders, the next Trump administration would federalize National Guard troops from Republican-dominated states and send them around the country to round up uh, undocumented people, moving them into what he called large-scale staging grounds near the border, most likely in Texas. This would be a new kind of internment camp. 1942, Japanese Americans, 2025, maybe Trump and immigrants mostly from Latin America. Heather Cox Richardson is the one who pointed out this connection. You have recently pointed out that attacking immigrants is a hallmark of right-wing movements today in many countries. Oh, absolutely. 
It's the hallmark of the far-right parties in Europe, some of which, uh, like in Italy, are already governing, some of which, like Le Pen's party in France, may govern after the next presidential election. It's really, you know, a kind of uh, nativist, nationalist movement. You could call it the nationalist international, almost, if you you wanted to. And, And speaking of the kind of global connections and history of this kind of this kind of movement. When when the name Stephen Miller comes up, I am reminded uh, there's a couple stories uh, either during like uh, the Yalta conference or the Tehran conference between Stalin and Roosevelt and Churchill or other such events. Supposedly Roosevelt was sort of looking down the table and he said, well, I know everyone here except that the gentleman with glasses. And Stalin is reputed to have said, oh, that's Beria, referring to Lavrenti Beria, the head of Soviet uh, secret police. And then he added, he's my Himmler. <laughs> and when I think of Stephen wow. Miller, somehow it fits into that story. Uh, I don't know that Trump is uh, historically literate enough to say of Stephen Miller, he's my Himmler, but uh, he should. A little more Trump talk uh, to close out the uh, segment here. Trump uh, referred to the murder of Russian dissident Alexei Navalny, calling it, quote, a sudden death. Well, it was sudden and it was a death. So as far as that goes, it's uh, not, not inaccurate. Then he went on to say, this is on his truth social platform, that Navalny's sudden death made himself, Trump, quote, more and more aware of what is happening in our country. In particular, he he cited, quote, the judges leading us down the path to destruction with their grossly unfair courtroom decisions that are destroying America, the letter in all caps. Now, I'm not sure I see the connection here. Navalny, Trump's legal problems, can, can you explain what he's talking about? Well, I mean, uh, Trump's mind is kind of uncluttered by any ideology. Uh, he, he's a sociopathic narcissist. And, and every event on the planet, he weighs one way or another as it uh, either affects him or as he wants people to think that it affects him. I think if, you know, if he's, if he really thought that he was in the, uh, suffering the same kind of fate as Navalny, you know, you would think, the decent thing for him to do would simply be to die, uh, but but uh, we ha- we haven't seen that yet, and 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 that that's what sort of would be required, I think, to uh, to begin to bear out this uh, kind of specious parallel that he's making. Harold Meyerson, read him at prospect.org. Harold, always great to have you on the show. Always great to be here, John. same old story. This is Living in the USA, and I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. Los Angeles is the city where progressives have had the biggest political victories recently. Now they will be tested as landlords and billionaires prepare to fight back. For that story, we turn to Peter Dreyer. He teaches politics at Occidental College. He's the author of several books, including Baseball Rebels, 
the players, people, and social movements that shook up the game and changed America. We talked about it here. He publishes widely, including in the LA Times, the American Prospect, the New York Times, the Washington Post, and The Nation, where his new article, co-authored by Mike Bonin, is titled, LA's Corporate Class Wants to Reverse Progressive Gains. Peter, welcome back. Thank you, John. Good to be here. On the one hand, LA has sky-high housing costs and a serious shortage of affordable housing. On the other, you report at thenation.com that it's one of the most renter-friendly cities in the country. What are the protection for renters that have gone into effect in the last couple of years? Well, during the pandemic, there was a lot of concern over the fate of renters, and that uh, gave the LA City Council a uh, an incentive to to protect renters from unjust evictions and skyrocketing rents. And so they put a uh, a hold on on rent increases. They put uh, a moratorium on evictions. They gave tenants the right not have to pay off their debts for a couple of years while they, particularly if they weren't working, which was a problem during the pandemic. And the larger context here is, is uh, LA has got a new progressive mayor on in 2022, Karen Bass, former community organizer, longtime representative in Congress, the city's first woman mayor and second African American mayor. She defeated the billionaire developer, Rick Caruso, who outspent her by more than 10 to one. And voters have also passed a so-called mansion tax on all properties selling for more than $5 million. I just have to stay, say, in my home state of Minnesota, the number of houses that sell for more than $5 million is about half a dozen or something like that. So this is a very LA-specific kind of uh, kind of situation. And along with the new mayor and the new taxes, the voters elected several progressive city council members who we will talk about in in a minute. On the other side, you report in your piece at thenation.com on a fundraiser a few months ago where members of LA's political and business elite gathered to launch a campaign targeting the progressive officials who've been elected in the last few uh, elections. Uh, First of all, tell us about the setting for this gathering? They had a a secret meeting to which they invited only their friends, developers, landlords, representatives of the police and firefighters unions at a Beverly Hills home mansion worth about $12 million. And they gathered there to hear Rick Caruso, the defeated candidate for mayor, and others with a, a plan to basically turn back the tide of progressivism in LA by spending as much money as they could possibly raise, first to defeat Nithya Raman. Nithya Raman, the leader of the progressives fighting for renters on the city council. And then uh, if they succeed in that, then to go on and try to defeat the two recently elected city council members who are uh, both progressive, uh, Hugo Soto Martinez and Unices Hernandez. And so they're feeling scared. And when the invitation came, which somebody who went to that meeting leaked to myself and and, uh, Mike Bonin, Uh, they told people that this was a meeting to reverse the tide of DSA Democrats. Yeah, I wanted to ask about this DSA thing. They say that they are out to stop DSA 
from taking over the city council, Democratic Socialists of America. Is this just old old style red baiting and name calling, or is DSA really a political force in LA city politics? It's mostly red baiting. I mean, DS, the local chapter of DSA has maybe a thousand members, which is you know a big increase from what it was ten years ago. They do know how to door knock and phone bank and get people to vote. But, you know, it's nowhere close to the power that the, the unions have. They're really afraid of the unions and the community organizing groups that do tenants' rights work and work on education reform and try to stop the tide of charter schools. And so it's really the billionaires, the cops, and the firefighters who don't like a progressive city council. And they've been losing for the last five or six years. And, you know, billionaires don't like to lose. So the number one target of the landlords and the multimillionaires is this new city council member, Nithya Raman. Who exactly is she? How did she get to be number one in their sights? Uh, Nithya Raman was elected to the city council in 2020. She defeated an incumbent as a city planner. She went to Harvard and MIT. She's uh, Southeast Asian, or she was born in India. She came to this country when she was six years old. She lives in Silver Lake. There, she helped to organize a volunteer group to people to help the homeless. She was uh, a do-gooder and a, uh, a reformer, and she had no political ambitions at the time. But she's very charismatic. She's very articulate, and she was angry at what she saw, and she decided to run for city council. Nobody gave her a chance. She didn't have a campaign manager, really. She didn't do any direct mail. She didn't raise that much money. But she had this incredible army of volunteers that helped her. DSA was part of it, but it was mostly people in the neighborhoods. So lo and behold, she won the race. And Zev Yaroskowski, the former city council member, told the LA Times that this was a political earthquake. Yeah, you quote uh, Hugo Soto Martinez saying, renters are the sleeping giants of L.A. politics, and Nithya was the first candidate to really tap into that. Mobilizing renters along with workers and immigrants is how we make lasting positive change. It's easy to get involved in, in the events of the last few months, the last couple of years. One of the best things about your new piece at thenation.com is the big picture of how L.A. has changed in the last, what, 20 or 30 years. L.A. politics has been transformed since the 80s when the city was run by the business elite, the real estate developers, aerospace, the oil companies. Most of them were Republicans. They wanted law and order, and L.A. was an anti-union, business-friendly boomtown. What happened to the old ruling elite that ran L.A. through the 80s? Well, from the 1950s through the 80s, L.A. had a kind of shadow government, and they called themselves the Committee of 25. Every city had some version of that, but L.A.'s was extremely powerful, and they were able to almost handpick mayors and police chiefs and district attorneys. And like you said, they wanted a pro-developer, pro-sprawl, anti-union city where they could basically run the city without much interference with democracy. And they were pretty successful at doing that. And their their mouthpiece 
was the Los Angeles Times, which was owned by the Chandler family, which was extremely reactionary, Republican, even supportive of the John Burt Society. It, it later changed over when the next generation of Times folks took it over. And then what happened is what happened in a lot of cities, which is that the big corporations started getting bought out by global corporations or corporations from other cities. There's not one big bank that's headquartered in Los Angeles anymore. The aerospace industry is basically left. Even the LA Times was bought out by a company in Chicago for a while. So, so LA became a city of absentee-owned companies. And the local branch managers of those companies weren't as invested in LA's future and didn't know enough to be politically effective. So the business elite, including the Chamber of Commerce, became sort of paper tigers in some ways. And there was one other huge earthquake in LA politics since the 80s, the rise of the labor movement. Yeah, absolutely. LA was a, a an anti-union city for most of its history, but beginning uh, in the 80s, uh, a new generation of labor activists began to organize, realized that the new wave of immigrant workers could be mobilized politically along with the other workers in the city. And they formed uh, a political force to get labor-friendly and progressive people elected to the city council, to the state legislature, even to Congress. And so they've made a huge difference. And let's mention a few of the highlights here. L.A. was one of the first cities to pass a living wage law back in the 90s. L.A. had one of the biggest successes of union organizing in the country when um, 75,000 home health care workers were organized by SEIU. They all work, uh, they get paid by the county to work at people's homes. To, and in, in the last year, you've seen this incredible wave of strikes by the writers, by the screen actors, uh, by the hotel workers. You've seen incredible union campaigns on college campuses. L.A. is basically ground zero of labor activism. L.A. is to the country to labor now what Detroit and New York were in the 30s and 40s. One of the more interesting things about this rise of union politics have been that a number of unions have built close ties to the tenants' rights groups, to the renters. That's something new. Why is that? Well, most union members in LA are renters, even school teachers. And what the unions began to figure out was that every time uh, they get a, a wage increase, their rent goes up even more. And so they decided to forge a coalition with community and tenant groups. And one of the results of that is this amazing victory that happened in November of 2020, 22, which you mentioned earlier, which people call the mansion tax. It is a, a, a tax on mansions that are worth over $5 million, but it's a, it's a, it's a tax on any property that's sold. It has to be sold over $5 billion. So that includes apartment buildings and office buildings. And it went into effect in April of 2023. It affects uh, only about 2% of all the properties that sell. Uh, on average, in an average year, there's only about seven or 800 mansions that sell for over $5 million. But the tax is significant. It's a 4% tax on properties that sell for over $4 billion and a 5.5% tax for properties that sell over 10 million. And so that was gonna generate, we think that'll generate somewhere between 400 million uh, to $900 million a year. And that'll go to produce affordable housing 
with union labor built by building trades. It will protect renters from eviction by providing them with uh, temporary uh, rent subsidies. And it will pay for lawyers uh, to provide tenants with lawyers who are facing eviction, which they rarely have, uh, which puts them at a, um, at a disadvantage when they go to housing court. And so this, the, the, the so-called mansion tax is really one of the things that triggered this ruling class effort to turn back the tide, because they were taken by surprise when this passed with 58% of the vote. So now, now the political campaigns are underway. The, the primary is uh, Super Tuesday, March 4th. Uh, tell us about the campaign to defeat Nithya Raman. So there's a, um, a group of developers and landlords and the police and fire unions and some business leaders that are pouring millions of dollars either in opposition to her or in favor of her, of her opponent, a guy named Ethan Weaver, who is a conservative lawyer. He works for the city attorney, who's a right-wing pro-landlord city attorney, really running a dirty campaign, including after October 7th, when Hamas attacked Israel, and then a couple of days later when Israel retaliated, Ethan Weaver tried to claim that because Nithya Raman had been supported by DSA, and DSA had been critical of Israel, that Nithya Raman must be an anti-Semite and anti-Israel, which is complete BS. And also the fact that she's, she has a name that sounds strange to many people, and she has a dark complexion, people have been led to believe that she must be an Arab. And so all of this is being used against her, really dirty politics. But, you know, in this case, she still has an incredible base of support, even though they, they got rid of 40% of her district and the redistricting. She still has an incredible base of support. She's very popular. I know she's been endorsed by the Democratic Party, the LA Times, Mayor Karen Bass, a lot of the progressive labor unions. Uh, how close do you think the vote will be? Last time she won more votes when she ran in 2020, more votes than anybody had ever gotten and city council. And I think she can replicate that in 2024, even though she's got a very different district, but she's gonna be outspent. People in LA are used to getting dozens and dozens of mailers. Most political consultants like to send mailers because they make money for themselves and the printers. But whether they're effective is a big question for political scientists and political consultants. Because if you get 25 or 30 mailers, People throw them in the waste paper basket right away. So it's not clear that even though Ethan Weaver's campaign is probably going to outspend hers, whether he has the, the ground game, meaning the people to door knock that Nithya has. She's got an amazingly loyal group of a volunteer army of supporters who are door knocking every day for her. And that's a hard thing to beat because you usually persuade people to both vote and to vote for your candidate if they see you at your door or at community meetings. And she's been doing that now for almost four years. And uh, Ethan Weaver is a newcomer and nobody really knows his name except that he's got all this money from the uh, corporate uh, donors and from the police and fire unions. One last question. Why are the police and fire unions uh, opposing her? Do they, are they against the renters? Nithya Raman was one of a group of city council members that voted against uh, a huge pay increase for the police. 
and has been critical of their racial profiling. And she's also been critical of the firefighters' uh, resistance to uh, gender equality among their uh, fellow workers. And so they have a very loyal following of, of firefighters and cops. They also door knock. But, you know, it's a strange coalition of the richest people in L.A. and the firefighters and the, and the cops. Peter Dreyer, his terrific piece on L.A. city politics, co-authored by Mike Bonin, is titled L.A.'s Corporate Class Wants to Reverse Progressive Gains. You can read it at thenation.com. Thank you, Peter. My pleasure. the same old story. This is Living in the USA, and I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. Now it's time for the news from Haiti. It's almost always bad. For the latest, we turn, of course, to Amy Willens. She's written two books about Haiti, most recently the award-winning Farewell Fred Voodoo, and before that, The Rainy Season. She was also the Jerusalem correspondent for The New Yorker, and her journalism has appeared in The Atlantic, the LA Times, and the New York Times. And she's a longtime contributing editor at The Nation. She's also a 2020 Guggenheim Fellow, and she teaches in the Literary Journalism Program at UC Irvine. Amy, welcome back. Thank you, John. We always remind people at the outset why we care about Haiti, not just because it's a desperately poor country not far from Florida. We care about Haiti because Haiti had the first slave revolution in the 1790s, the largest slave uprising since Spartacus, inspired by the French Revolution, and it established the world's first black republic. It's been punished for that by France and the United States pretty much ever since. The Washington Post had a headline on Sunday, Guy Philippe, former rebel, calls for revolution to oust Haiti's current leader. Who is Guy Philippe and what is this about? To call Guy Philippe a former rebel, it boggles the mind, but let me get into that. So uh, Guy Philippe is a former uh, high officer of the Haitian National Police. He led a um, coup d'etat against President Aristide. Now, you got to say, which one's the rebel and, you know, which one's the police officer? So Aristide was kicked out. This was Aristide's second term. Aristide was elected to this second term freely and fairly, although the United States and the UN and the International Friends of Haiti, so-called, um, debated and disputed his victory and his legitimacy. And then, oh, I don't know, suddenly Guy Philippe led a, a revolt against Aristide and he was overthrown again. And Guy was then uh, arrested eventually and uh, brought up on charges in Miami, I believe, uh, for uh, money laundering in just a vast scheme uh, worth millions of dollars. He bought a house in Broward County, uh, parked his family there. A scheme collecting bribes to protect Colombian cocaine being shipped through Haiti to Miami. He was sentenced to nine years in federal years, prison. Yes. And of that, he served seven and was uh, recently released, I don't know, for good behavior. It boggles the mind. 
sort of summarily deported into Haiti at, at that very crucial moment, really just months before uh, this big date in Haitian um, in the Haitian political mind, February 7th was upcoming on that day. Um, that's inauguration day in Haiti. And it also um, was the day that the uh, de facto prime minister, Ariel Henry, said he would step down. He's much maligned and hated both at the same time in Haiti. And many people want him to step down and he did not live up to that part of the bargain. Now it's so Guy Philippe was deported by the United States into Haiti. The United States fully well knows what's happening in Haiti right now, which is it's being run by a bunch of lawless gangsters of whom arguably Guy Philippe was the prototype. One wonders what he's doing there. Okay, let's take a step back and talk about life for the average Haitian right now. Uh, how bad is it compared to earlier decades of poverty and brutal dictatorship? You know, I never thought I would live to say it, but it, it is far worse right now than it was under Papadoc Duvalier, who was a bloodthirsty, ruthless, uh, brutal dictator. But it's worse now, and I think it's worse because Papadoc kept things under strict control. He really was the executive to whom everybody had to respond. And if you didn't behave, um, you were not going to fare well. Uh, so he had his enemies and he was uh, just a horrendous leader, but he was a leader. Now there's sort of, it's a rudderless, a de facto government with a very weak executive and no government, really. No government to speak of. There's a three-person electoral council that is really not doing anything right now because there are no elections scheduled. And uh, otherwise, there's really no government. I understand there are gangs that are filling the power vacuum. And they're filling the power gap because there's no executive, and yet they're being run by, you know, political factions and uh, drug dealers like the cartel. And that makes life for the average Haitian who would like to go out of her house and walk to the market and buy stuff for her family with money she made at her job, impossible. So businesses are shutting down. The markets are open air markets. You know, it's not like everybody goes to the supermarket, although there are supermarkets in Port-au-Prince. The big open air markets where everyone is used to doing their shopping, even the elites, are shut down repeatedly by these gangs because there's money to be extracted uh, through um, protection rackets in the markets. And then if the market ladies don't obey, they shut them down, they burn them, and you can't go to the market. You can't have a job because you can't get to your office because you might be kidnapped on the bus. There was a busload of, I think, 52 people that was kidnapped recently, then released, but hair-raising. And um, it's just not reasonable. You can't take your kids to school because the schools close all the time because of threats in the neighborhoods. And more than 300,000 people, by the way, have been displaced in Haiti because gangs come in and just simply burn down the neighborhood, steal everything there is there, and, and roost in the, uh, in the public buildings. They take over public buildings and just the government does nothing. I understand that the government of Haiti, whatever that is, has requested outside help in dealing with the gangs. And the United States and the UN Security Council have agreed to provide help. What form is this help supposed to take? 1,000 Kenyan police officers 
And then another bunch of police officers, another thousand or so from uh, small island Caribbean nations. You had an eloquent quote at thenation.com from a Haitian friend of yours about the idea that a thousand policemen from Kenya and maybe a thousand others from elsewhere in the country would be able to defeat the dozens or whatever hundreds of Haitian gangs. What did your friend say about that? Not likely. (laughs) (laughs) And he's right, because listen, there are about 200 gangs, according to international estimates, now operating in Haiti. Now, some of these are little gangs in little places, but some of them are huge armies. The the biggest one in Port-au-Prince counts around a thousand, maybe more men. And so that's big. And they all have big guns. They don't have little pistols and little old-fashioned World War I rifles the way the Haitian police used to have. They have machine guns. And they are extremely dangerous. And I don't know what the Kenyan police are used to dealing with. I think they deal with a lot. But I don't know if they can deal with this. And the Haitian gangs have a habit when threatened of sort of uh, coming together, let's say, in solidarity with each other to ward off threats. People are saying, like my friend, they're poo-pooing the ability of the Kenyans to control the situation. I agree with that, but I think that it makes the gangs nervous. And I think that's a reason why we're seeing actually a spike in gang activity right now, because it's gather you rosebuds while you may. And, you know, lots of kidnappings, lots of robberies are occurring right now. This has been the most, the worst of the years so far, 2024. Well, there's one more thing about the Kenyan police. The highest court in Kenya ruled on January 26th that they can't be sent to Haiti. But on February 4th, the Kenyan government said it was appealing that ruling and it was going to send the police there anyway. The Kenyan government said, we don't care what the Supreme Court says. It's not a popular idea to send Kenyan young men into the whirlwind of Haiti, of course. And that's why the Americans aren't going in either. P.S. Biden doesn't want that on his hands. So when are the Kenyan policemen arriving? No one knows. And maybe it's all right with the Americans, but for the Haitian people, every day means the loss of life. And uh, sexual abuse by the gangs against women and children is a, a terrible issue right now. And the UN said it can't even count the number of rapes. There are so many that are happening. This isn't the first time that foreign troops have been sent to Haiti proclaiming their goal to be restoring order. Not the first time. First of all, there was the U.S. Marine occupation in, from 1915 to 1934, um, which was supposed to calm Haiti and run Haiti after a lot of political unrest in Haiti. We can see some of the results today. Um, and then in 2004, after Guy Philippe ousted President Aristide, if you want to put it in simple terms, at the behest of the elite and who knows who else, the UN sent in a peacekeeping force called MINUSTA. And MINUSTA was there uh, from 2004 to 2017 with, without the establishment of a stable government in Haiti. Haiti has also gotten a lot of help from, from NGOs, from independent non-governmental organizations. How many NGOs have been working in Haiti? There are about 10,000 of them now. So we've had uh, UN peacekeepers, we've had 10,000 NGOs. 
what effect have foreign military forces and foreign aid workers had on the Haitian government over the last couple of decades? They've sort of vacuumed it out. They've emptied out its legitimacy because they do all the work. They run circles around the Haitian government because they don't trust the Haitian government. And sometimes that's fair, although usually it is a government that has been sort of nudged into place by the international community that's giving the aid. So the aid has really made the Haitian government uh, a useless vestigial organization and easily overthrown, replaced by a de facto prime minister. It doesn't, it's not really part of the game except to sort of insert itself into the machine of corruption in Haiti. The United States often calls for elections in Haiti to replace uh, Ariel Henry. The, just last week, the United States Charge d'Affaires said, we have redoubled our efforts to encourage the political class, the elites, and of course, the civil society groups to work with the transition government to move as quickly as possible to develop a roadmap for organizing elections, close quote. What is the transition government? That quote is just so horrible in every way. It makes me want to die. The transition government is Ariel Henry, who basically was nominated to de facto prime minister by the dead president assassinated. Ariel Henry came to power about three days later. But he was chosen by the international community out of the few candidates who could replace Moïse. So he is their baby. He is the baby of this man who is saying we are working so hard to get rid of this baby. <laughs> it's, it's outrageous. And then the way that he's put in that official has said, and of course, civil society. What that, of course, means is we don't want them in there. We don't want civilians in here. We don't want to know what they think. We don't like the grassroots. Of course, civil society should be involved. It makes me just, you know, it is so arrogant, outsider control. It's so colonial. Many times before on this broadcast, we've talked about something called the Montana Group, the largest coalition of pro-democracy groups named not after the state of Montana, but after the hotel uh, where they formed the, their, their compact. Uh, is the Montana Group still active? They're still active. They issue a lot of decrees and they make a lot of statements and they have a roadmap to elections, which is more than I can say for the government, the so-called government. You know, they're made up of middle class and uh, elite people, most of them good-hearted and right-thinking, and many of them with fantastic resumes uh, to be able to do sort of government work and get things done. But that they're part of the civil society that this this official is more than reluctant to admit into the uh, the room where elections are discussed. Yeah, well, this official, let's name him Eric Strohmayer is his name, and he recently told the Haitians in French, there must be a Haitian solution to the crisis. And this can only happen when the Haitians agree to an inclusive accord. That sounds perfectly reasonable. Don't you agree with that? No, not from the paternalistic charge d'affaires in Haiti. I don't agree with that. How can he say in the same breath 
there should be a Haitian solution. And here's what the Haitian solution should be, according to me, the American charge d'affaires. Nice that he speaks French, though. You write that foreign uh, advisors, especially the United States, the most dangerous menace in the current chaotic situation is the Haitian population. Please explain. That's how democratic the foreign community is about Haiti. They're just afraid that the people will rise up. They're already talking about Guy Philippe's revolution, and I can't tell whether they think that's good or bad, but they are they're worried about violence. They're not worried about violence against the Haitian people, clearly, because that's what the Haitian people are putting up with every day. They are afraid, I would call it the post-Aristide effect. They are afraid of a democratic solution to the situation in Haiti that might not cater for the needs of the friendship group the United States has cultivated in Haiti for years and years, which consists of the old elite families to a degree and the new elite families who are very powerful now. These are the billionaires in Haiti. Billionaires in Haiti. That should be the title of my next book. Now, there's another set of stories that have been coming out of Haiti recently, and they're about the trials of people accused of participating in the assassination of the last president, Moise. Last week, a former U.S. Drug Enforcement Administration informant was sentenced to life in prison, and another man pleaded guilty on Friday. This is in an American court to participating in the assassination or participating in the plot to bring a team of Colombian mercenaries to kill him in his uh, residence. Four have been sentenced in Miami to life. And then the wildest story is a New York Times report last week uh, that one of the other 70 people the Haitian prosecutor has recommended charges against is the former first lady, Martine Moise, who was seriously injured uh, in the attack. I understand the complaint does not accuse her of planning the killing. What is this about? There have always been a lot of suspicions about her. She almost immediately seemed to be launching a presidential campaign after he died. She was in the room. She's married to the guy. The guy was brutally slaughtered, and she got an elbow crack. I mean, they say a serious injury. She did wear... um, a sling for a couple of weeks, but I don't know how serious it was. Um, so I think that makes them cast suspicion on her. Plus, it just adds fuel to the craziness. And I think that's what the prosecutor in Haiti is doing. But I would look at these trials of possible conspirators in this uh, assassination that are taking place in Miami. When's the last time a dictator in Latin America was assassinated and the trials took place in Miami, if they took place at all? What is this all about? Why are these guys getting life sentences on American land? And this is just reflects on the Haitian government, too. They've had people in custody for ages, but they haven't brought anyone to trial. I believe they haven't charged anyone in Haiti. This is the first charge, I think, and it's 70 people. Come on. While while the Americans are busy stuffing people away into silence for a lifetime. When Salvador Allende died, was assassinated. Nobody brought his killers to justice in Miami. I'm just saying. You conclude your new piece at thenation.com. Throughout history, the United States hasn't been great at leaving its quagmires. From Korea and Vietnam to Afghanistan, Haiti is another such quagmire. 
Yes. And the Americans just don't know what to do. It's so nearby. It's such an embarrassment. Like the Americans in Haiti, the Russians presided over Cuba for the last half a century. And then you look at our baby satellite, Haiti, and how it's doing after so many years. You have to be into wonder which was the better governance, the American satellite or the Russian satellite. I can't really say that we've done a good job there. And to get us out is impossible. We have some kind of uh, psychiatric relationship to Haiti because of its early history as the first free republic for Black people, for slaves, for former slaves. And uh, our relationship to it is very conflicted and confounded. And it's the one place where, it seems to me, we, we are not willing to shoulder the idea that Black lives matter. Amy Willens, you can read her piece, Why is the U.S. Paying Kenya to Clean Up the Mess We Made in Haiti? at thenation.com. Amy, thank you for sticking with this miserable story, and thanks for talking with us today. You're welcome, John. That's it for Living in the USA for today. Our producer and social media maven is Renee Reynolds. Our audio editor is Alan Minsky. Thanks as always to Rye Cooter for our theme music, Mambo Sinuendo. Living in the USA is recorded and produced at our Blythe Avenue studios in Los Angeles. If you missed part of this show or any of our recent shows, you can listen online anytime you want at applepodcast.com, Living in the USA. I'm John Wiener. We'll be back next week talking about politics, thinking about the left, and living in the USA. Thank you.